0: Welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast when a pair of pastor-scholars study a scripture passage drawn from the Revised Common Lectionary. We hope that it will be enjoyable and edifying for all, as well as equipping for pastors or teachers who are working on sermons or lessons in the upcoming weeks. I'm your host, John Drury. I'm Spiritual Engagement Coordinator for Indiana Wesleyan University in Marion, Indiana. And my guest this week is... Sarah Hinlicky Wilson. Sarah is a pastor in Japan and a dear old friend and a regular here on the show. She's the author of uh, many books and a great preacher and student of the word, and I'm excited to have her on the show. I'll uh, put a little warning disclaimer here on the top that uh, uh, we're, of course, old friends and like to joke around a lot, and she's she's in particular a uh, Lutheran theologian, and I come from a different tradition, the Wesleyan tradition, but we both love Luther and Luther's theology, took some courses on Luther back in uh, graduate school together. And she herself is a multi-generational <laughs> progeny uh, from the Lutheran tradition. Her father's a, a Lutheran theologian. You can check out their podcast, in fact, that they do together. Uh, so it's uh, just Really great to have her here talking about James because Luther is sort of famous for referring to James as an epistle of straw. Luther was not a fan of the book of James as a kind of obsessant about Paul as the center of uh, the canon. Uh, so because of that uh, uh, stereotype, it's a one-sided one about Lutherans. Uh, it was, it was particularly fun to get to laugh together about uh, the proper understanding of James and respecting and appreciating James uh, even from a, for her, a tradition that tends to not be a huge fan. Uh, so it was really fun to talk about James five with her, which is our passage this week. It's James five, verse 13 through 20 James chapter five verses 13 through 20. So if you're not a fan of James, uh, hopefully this is a perfect episode for you, uh, to hear someone, you know, make a case, uh, from a perspective that's maybe not James friendly. And if you're a James lover, hopefully this will be a a fun twist as we come to the end of uh, our series on James for a a fun take on this final section of James. Make sure to subscribe if you're not already. So you never miss an episode. And while you're listening, if you're enjoying the show, hit the share button on your podcast player app of choice to pass this show on to others. So they may benefit as well. Lastly, if you'd like to support the show as well as receive some additional content, Simply go to patreon.com slash fresh text to become one of our patron saints. Thanks for listening. Enjoy this conversation with Sarah. All right. Will you read the passage? uh, James chapter 5, 13 to 20.
1: All right, here we go. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. The word of the Lord.
0: Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks for your word and for the way that your word is born and carried by your apostles, including the Apostle James. And we ask that today, as we study these final words of the Epistle of James, that we would be granted a portion of your spirit according to your will and desire for us this hour. That all those listening in, We ourselves might be guided by your spirit to a fresh hearing of the word of God. We ask this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Yeah, so uh, what are you noticing in this passage today? Was that a fresh, was that your translation?
1: No, that was the ESV. I'll do my, if you want, I can do my quirky, weird translation when we open up the next segment. We'll do that. uh, that.
0: That was good. Yeah, Yeah, but well, it was the the quirk was at the end of 16 that captured my the prayer of a righteous hmm. person is very effective when it is or as it is working.
1: Yeah, that there's lots of fun Greek here. So that is Energumene. That yeah.
0: That's the
1: it's like, but the word energy is in there. Maybe yes. it's energetic. You know, we could think of it that way. Good prayer is energetic prayer.
0: Yeah, the way this was quoted when I was a child, I don't know if this is King James or NIV, but I heard the phrase, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. So it was it was mm. always, I you know, and there's the way things are quoted as a child that often gets stuck in my head and, and even mess me up when I'm translating because I just kind of like, oh, I know that sentence. And then <laughs> I, don't, I don't pause and notice, wait a minute, there's no and there. And they're actually not two adjectives.
1: Yeah, you know, that's, I mean, this, we can get into this, but. um, Sure, let's start there. That, that, well, that, those two verses, 15 and 16, I think. They bear weight that they're not meant to bear in a kind of um, word of faith or prosperity context, because you can read these passages one way and be like, it's a great counteracting force to a passivity in prayer or a very like deistic mechanistic view of God that like, well, God knows what's best and God's going to do what God's going to do anyway. So my prayer makes no difference. Like that's, I think what James is speaking to, but it can of course be flipped on its head and be like, if you pray the right way you'll get exactly what you want because you can manipulate God that's the deal you know and and then when you don't get what you want you're blamed for well you obviously don't have as much faith as Elijah did you know so it's it's interesting how I was really struck these two verses that has to be one of the sources for like both the most corrupt doctrine of prayer and the most inspiring and beautiful doctrines of prayer right in the same place
0: yeah well maybe that's all the best texts kind of operate that way right (laughs) (laughs) I mean that's just kind of right true true it's where the action is it's the uh, it's the third rail you know it's it's uh, dangerous but it's also where all the power is right
1: well and th- i mean that's why we know that you need interpreters and theologians and preachers you, you can't just quote out of the bible because there's so many more questions and conversations that are raised out of these things
0: it's funny that you mention the elijah context because i feel like that actually helps with a more centered understanding of the claim that prayer of a righteous person works very powerfully as it is working just as, I like that as <laughs> it is working maybe that's intended to avoid the the problematic take but but mm-hmm. it, the Elijah though the, this prophetic context it's not that like Elijah had this crazy idea for 3 years without rain right it's it's oh, yeah, yeah. you know in context that would be understood that this is in accordance with God's plan it was revealed to him so he's asking God to do something that has been manifest to him as according with God's will. So it's not just the sort of, you know, crackpot scheme that Elijah came up with. (laughs) Right. God is saying,
1: ask me for what I want you to ask me for.
0: Yeah. And if God says, I'm not going to do it unless you ask for it, then our action is now in accordance with the divine will and enclosed within it, yet still sort of dependent on our agency, but only on account of God's freedom to include us or something like that. I might be getting too abstract there, but I, I just no, think the Elijah not. story. Yeah. Shocker. Right. <laughs> but, uh, but I feel like the story actually kind of helps. Cause it's not like Elijah just kind of was asking for a personal favor from God. Cause he's clearly not. He's actually, right. he actually it's funny when you zoom, when you zoom out in the Elijah story, he's asking for things to be hair tor- terrible for a couple of years. Right. I mean, like, <laughs> right, right.
1: Yeah. Not, not a good basis for a prosperity. <laughs> yeah. no, I, I think you make a really good point that Elijah is there to anchor this. Maybe, maybe even as this is being composed, is like, oh, this could be misread. So let's give a really good solid biblical example. And clearly, like you said, not something to Elijah's own personal advantage. It's not something right. you would ask for unless God, you, God told you to, but you know, it, it's also interesting. James doesn't specifically mention the whole context of God commanding this to Elijah as his prophet. And of course that, you know, that's the classic critique of Luther and others that James is so little on the God language here. But I think rereading at least this passage, and maybe this applies to the whole book, what I got this time through as the big picture was the Jewish modesty about naming God. So of course there's a modesty Ah. about the name of God proper, but I think there's also a kind of theological modesty of not just like bleeding out all over the place. God, God, God did this and says this, blah, blah, blah. You know, there's a way that you can invoke God all the time and be totally, if not blasphemous, maybe impious. So I I suddenly had this feeling reading this passage and maybe that this example of Elijah is a demonstration of that, is that, of course, James knows he's talking about God. And of course, you know, he's talking about God, but he's showing an appropriate modesty or discretion instead of being so heavy handed about it. And so if he says, Elijah, you know that because you're a, you know a good, well-educated Jew who believes in Jesus, that Elijah, of course, was commanded by God and was doing God's will. So it doesn't need to be said. It's, it's all within the context already.
0: Yeah, that's really good. I mean, it reminds me of This would obviously be hundreds of years later, but this is, if this is a text being written to be circulated in the diaspora, which I think is referenced, let me double check my memory.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Opening
0: sentence, right? James, bond servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. So it, it's at least framed as diaspora, right? And then, so then I think of the beginnings of the diaspora and and one of the favorite books for diaspora Jews, that's the book of Esther, in oh, which the yeah, name yeah. of God does not appear at, at all. all. And that's not irrelevant because the, the, you talk about that Jewish uh, respect for the name of God. It has its own roots in... The Tetragrammaton and the Ten Commandments and all that. But that takes on a new meaning in the diaspora because of the temptation of polytheism. Because it's not like this was not a secular society. This was a pagan society, right? This was a society right. where there were gods everywhere. And, and, and the, the, just the ignorance and foolishness of the Gentiles has a lot to do with their idols and their gods and the notion that we're not going to do God talk. We're not going to do excess God talk. That's not how we do our thing. Because actually, if there is one God, then God is involved in every single beat of every story we tell. Mm -hmm. So there's actually, I mean, maybe I'm overdoing it, but this is one of my readings of Esther, is that to identify certain events as the ones that God did is actually borderline idolatry. That's, I think, one of the insights that emerges in mature Judaism in the oh. diaspora that can be taken too far into kind of deistic territory. Right. So, I mean, there's risks in that thought, but it's a beautiful thought. It's not that God well, did the so- this, but not that it's that God is <laughs> the sovereign Lord of everything. Cause the moment you say, well, no. God does these special things. Well then, okay. Then there's probably other gods that did the other things. Right. That's how a polytheist thinks there's the God of this and the God of that and the God of this and that, and this and that. And it's like, no, there's the one God who's at work in all things. So again, I'm getting abstract, shocker, but it's I think fits James's mindset that that the God talk is intended to be implicit, and then this language. And maybe I'm changing the subject now, so I'll pause. I've a little I have a little stinger to add to that, but let me pause and see how you respond to that. But
1: well, you know, okay, so this actually sort of reminds me of my childhood in still more or less intact Christendom where you didn't have to say God, God, God all the time, especially, well, I mean, obviously in the language of worship and church, but like when I first encountered people who were like super articulate, even in their Casual conversation about God—it struck me as really kind of weird and off-putting, and and maybe over-determining, like you were saying, where God is involved by implication there, than where God is not. So, like t- to give my uh, my best possible reading on James in this light, then is exactly that: is that the context is so immersively a life of faith, a community of worship, and so forth that you don't have to do it. Like you, you. So, like, okay, me. Since I always try to give a good Japan example when I come on with you, like Thank one of you. the. <laughs> difficulties of, of learning Japanese is because it's co- what it's called a high context language. So there's so much that is not stated grammatically or semantically because the language evolved with a literally insular culture and a more homogenous culture so that it didn't need to be said Whereas English, I think probably just by the nature of its history, even though it's also an island culture, the Saxon and the Norman invasions, and then as it has, you know, moved out. And then it's modern um,
0: development and a colonial kind of setting. Right.
1: It's a super low context language. You state every little bit of it grammatically. And I think that's one of the reasons why it functions well as an international language, because nothing is implicit. And especially for Americans who have always dealt with so many immigrant groups, like everything has to be stated. You almost can never depend on conventions or etiquette. I think that's why we have a lot of conflict as well. So Right, because you
0: don't have all these conflict-avoiding strategies right, that right. languages, so, more high-context languages are basically designed to do,
1: right? Yeah. Is you so never be, say
0: the thing that's going to get you in trouble.
1: <laughs> right, so to be generous to James, it could be it is so high-context religious language that you don't that. have to go... Overboard and say Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Like, you know, I get Luther's concern, but I'm trying to to follow his eighth commandment dictum of putting the best construction on things. So that's that's my that's my plug for James. I'm on the record now.
0: I think that's really great. And and it connects then with Luther and his Teutonic pagan sensibility and why (laughs) he's so attracted to Paul, because Paul has that background but he's trying to make things explicit for these dang gentiles who don't get exactly. what it's like right. to be a monotheist and a believer in the resurrection of Jesus right. he's he's laying it out which for us gentile christians is really helpful but then all of a sudden it, it it weirdly becomes empty and something's missing in a kind of fuller kind of life and that's why James keeps popping up in renewal movements who and renewal movements including my own tradition the western tradition loves James because of this kind of like – okay, this is describing – this is hinting at and painting pictures of a life, a whole life, not just an explicit doctrine that can be laid out, but a life that's lived. And the more you live it – because like if you're actually living this, obviously he's talking about God in verses 13 and following because it's about prayer. Who are you asking? You're asking <laughs> the Lord. Now, this is the the stinger I wanted to add. Well, I'll, I'll drop it in here and we'll take a quick break, but – The question I want to ask us is, is who is being referenced by the language of the Lord here? Because there's different ways to take it. So let's pause there on that question and take a quick break and come back and explore some more. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with Sarah Hinlicky Wilson, and we're looking at James chapter 5. Verses 13 through 20. Let's hear the text again. Sarah has her own uh, translation she prepared that is intentionally quirky, or at least intrinsically quirky, uh, if not on purpose. So let's hear it.
1: All right. Who among you is suffering? Let him pray. Who is of good cheer? Let him twang. Who among (laughs) you is feeble or sick? Let him summon the elders slash presbyters of the church and let them pray upon him anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord and the vow or prayer of faith will save the weary slash sick and the Lord will raise him and also the sin committed will be forgiven him. Therefore confess to one another the sins and pray on behalf of one another in order that you may be healed. Much avails the petition slash prayer of a righteous man as it is working. Elijah was a man Homoe pathetic to us. And he prayed a prayer that it might not rain, and it did not rain upon the earth three years and six months. And again he prayed, and the heaven gave showers, and the earth sprouted its fruit. My brothers, if someone among you should be deceived from the truth, and someone turns him back, let him know that the turner back of the sinner from his path of deception will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins.
0: The word of the Lord. That was awesome. (laughs) Thanks be to God. (laughs) Oh, man. Well, do you want to comment on any of your choices there to get us started? Yes. Or do you want to do my – we'll come back to my question about what is – the Lord who's being referenced there. But well,
1: well, my going through the translation will set up the question well. So, okay, okay. OK, first of all, like always, the Greek has all these fun Easter eggs, which is yes. a, a, a great little. I love the, that we even say the phrase Easter egg. It's like a way that the resurrection gets into pop culture. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. Um, but OK, so in the first line, I just love it that the response it's like translated sing praise, but actually yeah. the literal meaning is the twangy noise that a stringed instrument makes it's solito. Mm. So like, there's obviously some automatopoeia there in the Greek. So I just think that's more fun to have the, especially with all the solito. stringed instruments of the, of the old Testament.
0: Yeah. And it's a uh, shared root word with like Psalm, right? I mean, it's not exactly the same, so it doesn't have oh, the sure. M in there, but it's yeah, related. Yeah, yeah. It's a related yeah. term.
1: Right. Right. And then, okay. So this is totally my obsession, but I'm always interested in the agents and the patients. (laughs) And we have literal patients here because we're talking about sick people. But, um, the first question who is suffering, if you presumably, if you're the sufferer, you pray. Second question, if you're cheerful, then you're the one who twangs on the, on the lute or the ukulele. But then the third question who is sick then suddenly the agency is robbed from you you at least for your own prayers you summon the elders and then let them pray upon him it's like my favorite mark 2 where Jesus says what or it says when Jesus saw their faith he said to the man your sins are forgiven and yeah. so the same thing is happening here is like you actually when you're that sick you don't pray for yourself but someone comes in and prays for you and then 15 clarifies this by saying the prayer of faith will save the weary or sick. But the whole point is that it's not the prayer of the suffering sick person. It's the prayer of others on their behalf. And like, it is actually that language of salvation, the save slash heal verb that Luke uses in double meaning all the time in his stories. And then the Lord will raise him. That's the resurrection verb.
0: Yeah. It's the exact word. It's not like faintly related it's like no no it is the verb of choice
1: for resurrection and the sin committed will be forgiven him so like again like in mark 2 there's a connection made between physical healing and the forgiveness of sins and not in the sense that you're sick because you sinned but that they're parallel healing processes for body and soul and then it just like from there just kind of explodes outward confess to one another your sins pray on behalf of one another that you may be healed and then it goes back to the elijah thing that we talked about About And then, okay, in 19 and 20, I think this is so important. Like the ESV says, if anyone wanders from the truth, but the verb in 19 is a passive verb. If someone among you should be deceived from the truth. So it is a a passive thing that happens to you. You have been deceived. It's not that you wandered off, but that something happened to you. You were victimized by evil. Then the active agent again is not you. It's someone else, someone who turns you back. And then the kind of the punchline of not just this passage, but the whole book is that the turner back of the sinner. So the person who goes out and grabs you like the good shepherd going after the hundredth sheep and brings you back from the path of your deception. And then this is insane. will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. So this extraordinary capacity of the, the community of faith to enact all these things within Jesus, the Lord's saving work, it's just fantastic. But I think it really matters to be clear on who the agents and who the patients are in this whole passage.
0: Yeah, oh my gosh, that's so good. Yeah, those loaded words, uh, sozo and agero, to save, to raise, to turn back. And that yeah, then that same verb gets used, right? So the Lord, I mean, it's the Lord who raises them up back in verse 15, but it's the prayer of faith that saves, right? And then again in verse 20, right? It's the turner back, you know? (laughs) saves their soul. Wow. 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 Yeah. And then it's all, like you said, under in the name of the Lord and that repeated reference to, is it twice when we get Curios mm-hmm. Lord, verse 14 and 15. Right. right.
1: And That's- I think since you asked earlier, like, mm-hmm. which Lord are we talking about here? I mean, I think this is the, the blessed conflation of the Lord God of Israel with his incarnate son here, because I don't think there's any way you would have the Lord and then the resurrection verb and not have Jesus Christ in mind, the risen one. Like, yeah. I just don't, I, I think that must be, again, the high context use of noun and verb there that everybody knows that there mm-hmm. is this identity and distinction, but ultimately the lordship of both Jesus and his
0: father. So I am increasingly inclined to see, I mean, I think that's dead right. And it's basically the whole new Testament only makes sense as this ever deepening, though often perhaps subconscious drive to conflate, (laughs) right. The, uh, to, to play on that, uh, connection and distinction, but more as, like you say, just kind of a conflation, a sort of the Lord. You know what we're talking about when we say the Lord. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what do you mean? Are you talking about the, the risen Messiah or are you talking about the one who raises the Messiah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and the spirit. Um, <laughs> exactly. Well, yeah. But I do wonder back to I, – I wasn't going to camp on that. But when you said early the shyness around the divine name does make me wonder if actually James is – Perhaps closer to Paul, because, of course, in Paul's language, kurios almost exclusively has its primary reference to Jesus, right? Um, he, 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 Again, he's playing with that conflation, but, of course, he's probably some of our earliest literature, so he tends to keep the distinction more alive. It tends to be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He tends to right, have right, that. Right. And and then when there's places where he isn't specifying the language tends to make the most sense. And I didn't, I wasn't as quick to attribute that to some other authors in the new Testament, but I'm wondering if that might be going on here with James, because when I was growing up, I was kind of like, James doesn't really talk about Jesus. And since the tradition is that he's Jesus' brother, it was like, well, you know, I mean, he's, he's like, well, he's just my brother, you know? (laughs) And, And, and the kind of more, as it were, liberal Protestant usage of the book of James, which I experienced in its softer form, as it gets meaty because pietism kind of does that there's like there's like the soft form of that that like Mm -hmm. does still believe in the deity of jesus and his resurrection and healing and all that stuff but like wants to regularly say but jesus was a man and lived like us and we can live like him too right because the emphasis is on the holy life so that's there i I wouldn't say we're so there's a kind of soft uh form of that kind of and the, and the love of the book of James can get correlated with that, right? And so mm-hmm. it's easy for me to think of this as generic God talk, you know, right. God slash the Lord. But the more time I've been spending in James, especially even this year, I've been like, I wonder if, if I read every single Lord as having a first reference to the risen Jesus, do they work? And they all do. Like they all do. Mm. I mean, yeah. even like the draw near to the Lord, he'll draw near to you. Where's that? actually works better. Cause it makes, there's a, it's back, that's back it earlier in uh I I, I shouldn't push it right now. I'm, I'm pushing an agenda here, but uh no, that one's God, my bad. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That's chapter mm-hmm. four, verse eight. Um, well, I mean,
1: if we put ourselves back, all right. Oh, so there it is. is it's
0: the, the parousia of the Lord. That's what it is. That's five, uh, eight.
1: Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, that's
0: explicit, right? Yeah, is coming right. near, right? So he's got right. some explicit like uses of kurios, um, whereas that's what I was trying to say is the contrast of that then with chapter 4, verse 8. They were both verses 8. That's why I messed up in my little commentary here. Because um, there it's draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And that was in kind of the context of prayer, right? And so right. prayer tends to be addressed primarily, though, not exclusively to the Father. I mean, I don't want to overdo this. Father son business because I don't think it it probably will conceal more than it reveals when it comes to James as a text. But for us as Christian believers with that tradition, it's kind of the yeah. question can't help but come up in my mind and and I want to just add to your uh, repentance as a Lutheran, your, your Lutheran <laughs> sem- semper repentance to say James is <laughs> James is great, guys. Don't don't hate him Mama. as a kind of you know. So my own Semper Repentons as a kind of like obsessant about the risen Christ and his deity and like, you know, the sort of just wanting to like highlight like, no, I think, I think Jesus is actually all over this book. And and it's maybe even that shyness about the name of God has transferred its way over even to the name of his big brother, you know, like he's just the Lord, (laughs) you know? Well, know. you know,
1: the, the the Trinitarian dogmas still get such a bad rap, which they shouldn't. I mean, this is why they were developed, because there are yeah. all these patterns. And, like, how does an early Jew who believes in Jesus, like, parse this out? Like, you know, somehow your life has been transformed by the fact that somehow Jesus Christ is the living Lord, though he's somehow mm-hmm. not identical to the Lord right. God of Israel. And yet he is somehow like you, you don't have the, the conceptual language for that. You have the profound experience. You have the liturgical language, the prayer language, the stories that circulate. So, you know, it, Given how extraordinarily careful the early Jewish believers at this time would have continued to be about their monotheism, about not falling into polytheism, mm-hmm. not turning Jesus into an Apollo or whatever, I mean, I think the reticence there is entirely plausible. But it doesn't mean that we say, "Well, they had no idea whatsoever that Jesus was Blah blah blah. blah. You know, that's that that's a Harnackianism <laughs> coming coming back and forcing something that doesn't fit. I think in the in the the religious culture of something like. James.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's spot on. I think that's really good. That helps me hear you kind of talk that, talk that through. And it seems to resonate with your, uh, reading of the text. So I'd like to come back to what you emphasize unless you want to go elsewhere, but I'll ask it this way because i noticed this deep emphasis and I think it's totally accurate and it's highlighted better by your translation with its agents and patients. But, uh, when we emailed about doing this text, you said that by this, you know, le- you know, this wonderful grace of God. This is your favorite passage in James. So, say a little more about why that's the case. My hunch is it's connected to some of what you were already saying, but maybe not. I don't know.
1: Yes. Well, again, you, you bring me on because you want the stereotypical Lutheran to say her bit. So no, here I go. No, Sarah, but... <laughs> I want you to be you.
0: You be you. <laughs> Whatever I, uh, that is. I, <laughs> yep. Uh,
1: Lutheran down into my bones. But no. Okay. But the reason why I love this is because this passage is the reconciliation of Paul, James, and Luther. Like, this is where they all actually converge at the same place, because this is a joyful exchange passage. This whole mm. thing is about the joyful exchanges that the risen Lord has already made possible, and now it's how that joyful set of exchanges works itself out in the life of the church. And, like, Luther is all about this. This is so much more important to his doctrine of justification, sanctification, church life, than the of the forensic imputation of a, a legal judgment nah, in a court of law. No, this that's, this is that's really the
0: background. The- that's the background noise to the to the point about the reform of penance as a practice, right? That's right, communicated right. through the community to one another. Right.
1: Yes, the priesthood of all I mean, believers
0: for one each for one another, not the priesthood of each believer for themselves, but.
1: Yeah. So if you just like set aside, clearly there is some misunderstanding in the terminology of faith between Paul and James. It must be really old and really deep, and we see it play out. But I think if you look here instead Uh, of of that semantic fight which I, I, I'm going to say is genuinely a misunderstanding, then you see that they're all coming. Paul and James are converging at the same place, which is that the Lord Jesus makes possible this life of ecstasy of standing outside of yourself in which all these exchanges are possible. So that is why you pray for others and the Lord saves you because of their prayer for you. That is an inherently social communal body of uh. Christ. That of course, Paul is all about too, and this idea of being the the patient who receives the prayer of others, who receives salvation, who unfortunately receives deception, but can also be extracted from the deception. I mean, again, this is all Paul's language of passivity before God, but that Christ comes and transforms the situation by the power of the Holy Spirit. So, I think if we like take this as like the apex of James's own letter here and sees that this is where all of the moral stuff is heading towards is this entirely interconnected community through Christ. Then I think like there is no fundamental disagreement between him and Paul. And that even, even Lutheran, a good Lutheran can say, yes, this, this is, he gets it. This, this is all ending up at <laughs> the right place. <laughs> I know That's it was damning with fate praise at the end there, but yeah, that- I have to say I, I tried my best.
0: <laughs> yeah, it was great. I I'll, I'll take the Lutheran stereotype when it's executed with uh Clarity and gusto. I mean, I dig it. I love it. And I think when you read the text carefully, it is so radically communal in the way yes. things that are executed, as are almost all of the preceding passages in James that often get seen as moralistic or legalistic or whatever. I mean, they're always about how we're treating each other, right? It's not, it's yeah. not kind of in the abstract. How can you be a good person? In and of yourself, it's, um, it's not, it's not structured that way at all. All the all the virtues and practices that are being extolled um, fit actually that framework. If you kind of read the whole book from that point of view that you're presenting here at the end, which might just make it the case that maybe it's not that James aligns properly with Paul, but that Paul and James were just two aspects of a you know, a a common, you know, incipient or implicit sort of sense amongst the early apostles of what was happening in these communities, right? Is that the person they were following-
1: communities of moral virtue or training in, in goodness, certainly they're that. But I mean, I, I think James ratchets up the tension so high at the end here, like salvation is actually at stake. Yes. yes so if that's somebody right. wanders away and you don't do anything, you know, like think of Paul saying, I'm going to hand this guy over to Satan, but just temporarily, for Right. <laughs> you know, like, but I mean, it's a similar sense that the stakes are really high in your communal life. It's not just being a good person. I'm not sure right. there's anything wrong with that, but that actually- healing, forgiveness, salvation, resurrection. Like these are all bound up in the community. And the life.
0: salvation of the community. I mean, you think of Paul's, right. you know, sent, you know, handing them over to Satan. It's kind of like, it's for that guy's good for him to repent, but it's also, so the community, because the community is putting itself at danger, Right. you know? Yeah. So that's very, very important. This confessing of sins to one another, right? Not to God. Like, right. Like yeah. that's, that's yeah. very striking verse 16, right? Like yeah, that's this, what
1: Bonhoeffer practiced yes. in his, you know, illegal seminary is he, he reinstituted confession and Luther also says, you know, you, you don't have to go to a pastor, you know, you could confess to one. any Christian can confess and absolve to another.
0: Yeah. And it's this great kind of, I mean, I always like to joke. It's not like Luther nailed the 95 theses and like the next day there was like a Different denomination on every corner, right? Like, <laughs> right, right? like the development of a kind of individualistic uh, go to the church of your choice kind of denominationalism is a much longer process of development with all kinds of intervening features related yeah. to uh, enlightenment and modernity of all kinds of complexity. And the notion like, hey, you don't have to go to a priest. We often mistake like only that first moment. It's a low context language problem, right? It's kind of like low low and high, right? It's like, yeah, don't have to go to a priest. Doesn't mean you don't have to go to anybody, right? Right. (laughs)
1: Or you don't need to confess at all. Yeah. You still need to confess. Yeah.
0: Confess your sins to one another, not confess your sins to God, receive forgiveness in private, and then go talk to somebody about it afterwards, which is often how it's framed. So often the church kicks in as a secondary factor, as an auxiliary, you know, well, it will help, you know, sure, you could do the Christian life on your own, but it's easier when you have the church. Well, that ain't true. It's definitely like the church is just <laughs> as good at making it harder. Uh, <laughs> but the, the, the issue isn't whether it's easier or harder because the church is not auxiliary to the gospel. It's, you know, it's it's integral, right? It's yeah part of the very experience of resurrection and salvation. I think am am I now if I'm putting words in your mouth or concepts in James's mouth that are taking us astray, then go ahead and, you know, push back. But
1: no, no, I I agree that the church is, is part of what you get with the gospel. I mean, you know, sometimes it is a bit of a dead mouse gift, (laughs) but, (laughs) but I mean, like if, if sin wasn't really a problem, Then the whole salvation story wouldn't happen. So like, I I think an ecclesiology that says, you know, of course, congregations are full of sinners. What else would they be? (laughs) Part of part of growing up in the reality, you know, growing, like maturing in your, your expectations, not having the naive idealistic expectations of, uh, youth or recent convert sort of thing but saying no the the whole point we're here is because we all kind of suck and we need each other and that's why we need other people to pray for us because we're not very good at doing it rightly for ourselves you know doesn't James say earlier why don't you get what you want because you don't ask for it yeah like- yeah
0: yeah well that's great let's take a quick break and come back and explore some sermon starters all right we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with Sarah Henlicky Wilson, and we're looking at uh, James chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. Let's explore some sermon starters. Let me ask you just a quick Greek geek question before we jump in. Uh, I noticed you you had a funky translation in verse 17, where it talks about Elijah was a man, homoio oh to us. So what, what was your word that you chose? It was almost a almost a transliteration. What was it?
1: Yeah. Well, I invented homoepathetic. Homoepathetic? I, well, because pathos, you know, that's where we get yeah. the word pathetic, you know, feeling, right. but that's how in English we turn it into an adjective. So uh yeah, well I mean you know of course it like set off all the bells of, of Trinitarian language like homoousios usios versus homo usios and so forth. And I was just like so thrilled to find that kind of word in here. And I've never <laughs> heard it's applied to Jesus, though I mean I think Hebrews would definitely make a hom homoy pathetic argument. You know, we do not have a yes. mediator who is unlike us but has suffered everything as we have, just without sin. And that does use so,
0: homoy. He does use homoy Hebrews. Okay, guys.
1: there you go. So I don't anyway, pathos.
0: I'll check. We're doing Hebrews next. That's the next series. So
1: ah, there you go. Yeah. There you go. So Amy peeler here she comes. Yeah, so, I already, uh, already
0: did one. That's ne- nice. That's nice. Like, that's uh that's next week. I mean, I'm out of order for our sweet. listeners. That'll be next week. Yeah. So yeah, yeah,
1: sweet, sweet. Amy, next well, week. Well, anyway, yeah. I just love that pathetic, Um, just because it's a dorky Greek word, but also because I mean, the the point here is that you don't have to be a faith superstar to pray. The whole point is that Elijah is just like us. He had emotions and problems and sins just like us. I mean, like in the Elijah story, he's like every true prophet, really unhappy with his job and wishes God would just leave. Him alone and let him die already, and yet <laughs> you know he was able to pray and stop up the heavens according to, to God's commands. So, I, I think. I think that a lot of people feel that, like, all the cool stuff happened 2,000 years ago or longer, and, like, Mm. now the cool stuff doesn't happen, and, like, so Elijah got to talk to God directly, but I don't, and um, I think something like this kind of passage says, you know, he's just like us, and whatever the nature of his prayer, it's the same as the kind of prayer that you pray also, and I think there can be a lot of, again, encouragement of the right kind of prayer that can come out of this passage.
0: That's really good. I, I I mean, I'm glad we're starting here because I, for me, when I think of running with a sermon and if you have some other hunches, we'll we'll explore those too, but I would I would definitely be inclined to apply the Mandy Drury rule here and see the take the <laughs> take the take find the find the narrative, the OT narrative that's being alluded or here explicitly uh cited. Um and explore that Elijah that that specific event and find ways to kind of link up with that cuz he does but specifically in the way that you just mentioned that I didn't think of till just now to be able to say to people you know we think that like they just had miracles all the time 2000 years ago in Jesus time and it's just it's just it was easier for them to believe easier for them for that faith and to be able to paint a picture and actually and it would you know I don't want to get too uh into the historical context, but as an experience, because it would affect people's faith now as an actual experience to invite people to see, to picture this Jewish diaspora of them in the exact same mindset, Hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Walking around thinking, God, I mean, our, our, our homeland has been, you know, overrun by Gentiles for hundreds of years there's no Exodus happening. And for them, the way we think about Jesus, Paul, resurrection, healing, right? That two thousand years ago thing is maybe how a lot of Jews at that time felt about, you know, Moses, Exodus. Yeah, right? sure, sure. Or, or a little later, Elijah, Elisha. That that to them was distant history. Sure. And um God's not really listening anymore. So I need to just, you know, make my do and make my peace with this new, you know, this new situation. I mean, a lot of times we'll talk about how like, oh, you know, the Bible's from this other, you know, this distant, it's different in time and in space and it's distant us. But it's sometimes helpful to see that that problem of distance is actually in, inside the Bible itself. Because <laughs> right, the Bible's right. not a book, it's a library, right? And so yeah. the later books are talking about the other earlier books saying, whoa, God was so cool back then. Why doesn't he do that? <laughs> and like, it's actually kind of encouraging to think like. That that would have been a that that people in, quote, Bible times needed someone to tell them Elijah was a man just like us. Right. Right. And we're here thinking James and Paul were just a man like us.
1: Yeah, it's even early, like in Judges and First Samuel, you know, like, and the people did what was right in their own eyes, or the the vision of the, the, what was it, the word of the Lord was rare in those days. Yes. You know, and even if you add up, like, all the Old Testament miracles and all the New Testament miracles, relative to the span of time and the number of people, it's still not that much. So, like, <laughs> it's not like the average Bible person was, like, seeing a miracle every six months or so, and is like, oh, yeah, that's right, that's why I believe in God, I'll keep going now, you know, like, they were also rare.
0: Yeah, at a high school Sunday school teacher, I remember who pointed out to me. I think maybe junior high. He pointed out to me that we picture Abraham walking and talking with God all the time, and it's not impossible. But in terms of the narrative, it's like once every forty years. <laughs> right. And you're like, whoa! Actually, yeah. he spent a lot of time just raising sheep and like <laughs> yeah. run doing his life yeah. and being faithful to a promise that was made. Uh, yeah. In, well, here, for here's for him. Crazy it become thing. pretty distant.
1: Yeah. Let let me give another little plug for Luther here. In his eight volumes, at least in English, of the Genesis commentary, he totally historicizes the word of the Lord. He actually suggests who he thinks was the preacher who brought the word of the Lord to each person. So even for him living in a pre-modern era where it was easier to some extent to believe in miracles and wonders. And it is for us now. He nevertheless said the word of the Lord was not the voice of Orson Wells coming out of heaven. It was actually like, so he says, you know, Shem was it and like Adam was the one who confronted Cain over Abel's death for him. It's all entirely historicized. So it's not supernatural in that sense, but it's completely within the plane of normal human discourse. And I was just, I was gobsmacked by that when I found it out, but I think it actually means. It actually fits
0: this passage too. It fits, right? This it is how fits, God, this is how God speaks to us. Is And then if you actually other.
1: talk to people about what made the difference in their lives, like I think most people have encountered something that they believe was a miracle in their own lives or someone close to them. And I think most people can tell you, well, when this, as you said, like junior high teacher or pastor or friend or grandmother or whatever said this to me, it like put everything in a new light and mm-hmm. I turned around and saw things completely differently. Like, why is that not the word of the Lord coming and doing the metanoia on you? I I mean, I think that is actually for real how it happens. Yeah. And of course, in biblical narrative, it's going to take on a certain narrative color to it, but it doesn't mean that it's an, an alien phenomenon.
0: Yeah. And, and the word of the Lord that became flesh. Well, guess what? He became flesh, right? So even right. like the God, when, even when God speaks for himself, he still speaks. Uh, to, like a dude. <laughs> yeah under his opposite uh right. <laughs> to, to, as a, so listeners you must pardon uh, sarah and i making all our little our, all our little luther jokes we uh uh i have this you know special place in my heart for lutheran lutheran theologians and sarah and i we took out a luther seminar all those years ago with
1: that's right we did we did
0: with hendrix yeah, yeah. um Yeah. So where would you maybe want to go with this? Like I said, I might, that might be one tack. I think there could be other entry points. Well, how might you run with this text if you were preaching it?
1: Yeah. So I, I could not find the manuscript, but I know that when I was doing my field work at abiding presence in, in uh, Ewing, New Jersey, that we, we must've done a series on James. Maybe it was in the lecture. I don't know, but I actually had this text and somehow I set it up with a call and response which you know like never happens in Lutheran churches. <laughs> but so like after reading this, I was like, who? All right. So if someone's suffering, what should they do? And like I actually got them to respond. They should pray. And I was like, okay. And if you're cheerful, what should you do? And they said, you should pray or sing praise or whatever. And it's like, okay. And if you're sick, what should you do? And they went, you should pray. And I was like, no wrong. You should not pray. You should get someone else to pray for you. And it was huh. just like, wasn't it one of the, the. It, it worked really well. That was a very compliant congregation. But I think that was really nice because it like got them into the spirit of here's what you do. And then like, because of, they just chimed in the, the answer of an agency answer to be able to contrast it with a patiency answer and say, no, actually here's where the joyful exchanges start. And then from there kind of went through the rest of the passage and all the ways that, you, you are doing for others and others are doing for you. And it's this networked reality rather than I just pray privately for myself. So I think, I mean, that that was just the way, the rhetorical um, strategy I took there. But I think some way of bringing out all of those exchanges that, I mean, that would be what obviously excites me the most about this.
0: Yeah, because it just never stops because then they're confessing for each other and you're, you're turning them back, you know, bringing, restoring people. I mean, it's just so sort of radically this sort of yeah joyful exchange how how better to put it I mean this is an exegetical question but it also is then crucial if one were to to preach with a focus on those opening that opening contrast between our own agency and our need for others What what's then the difference between you know cacopathe verse 13 suffering suffering badly or suffering something bad uh and ostene, you know, uh, to be ill, infirm, mm. right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What's the difference between what, – what What did your translation have? How did you translate it differently? Well,
1: there seem to be a lot of different words here, more than I expected. Yeah. Like the, the prayer words also. That's I another mean, even one. Though, it
0: keeps changing. Different yeah, words for prayer. And you, you tried the, to catch that in your translation. I noticed the that. The root
1: of most of them is the UK or post-UK, which you see throughout mm-hmm. uh, the New Testament. But like so – Right, so not feeble, in 16,
0: right? Deasis, yeah, right? Right, yeah.
1: right. More like some, a petition or a vow, or the vow of the faithful in, in um verse 15. Yeah, and so like feeble sick, that's what I have in 14. What that what is that's uh asthenai, right? Yeah, and yeah. then let's see, the weary sick, that's what I have in fifteen, what that's come nonta,
0: mm-hmm. nonta,
1: And then I think there was one other, maybe not. Yeah, I don't know specifically what what James would have had of mine from the difference of suffering, though it does seem to be that the sickness is something more dire, like maybe between sickness and sickness unto death, (laughs) to quote Kierkegaard, maybe it's something more like that where, you know, and I think maybe this would really speak to a culture that is just seeing such a horrible increase in the suicide rate and depression and anxiety to say like, Well, what happens when you're beyond praying for yourself or intervening on your own behalf? Like with your last gasp, get someone else to come in and help you rather than trying to do it all yourself. And maybe for like super individualistic boosterish Americans saying like, I just can't do this. I need someone else to pray for me. Yeah, because then you don't have to add the guilt of like having insufficient faith, which of course is a real problem for religious people. But say, all right, I'm at the point. I'm at this this weariness unto death. Somebody else come and pray for me because I just can't do it.
0: So maybe that's what it means to have faith is to ask for help, right? Yeah. First step in the 12 steps, right? Is yeah. saying I'm powerless right. and I need help. Yeah. yeah. Right? Well,
1: and like, why else do you need Jesus? But you can't right. save yourself. You need, you need someone else to save you.
0: And of course, the beautiful thing is your own agency is getting restored through that process, right? Right.
1: Because hopefully then you'll go and pray for someone else who is sick or you will see someone who's deceived and turn them back. Yeah.
0: Yeah, because free people, free people, right?
1: Yeah, pay it forward.
0: Yeah. So, okay, I don't want to ruin your your fun call and response, but, you know, it's years ago. (laughs) There's a possibility that I'm not pushing this hard. It's just a possibility that there's a kind of playful parallelism going on here because I just don't think these words are different enough. Hmm. This might hmm. just be good style. I, I remember this is a definitely really important in Hebrew style, and you definitely see a Hebrew mind at work here, even though it's in Greek. True, True. There, This might be a kind of Greek Yiddish, right? That's kind of has a <laughs> – and I wonder if this opening – because he keeps changing the words for hmm. suffering, one wonders if it's really all kind of one thing. And right. it's kind of right. like – Yeah, you should pray. And then as he kind of goes along, he's like, yeah, but you're not going to, it's not going to work by yourself. You know, it's the same point. I want to get to your same, I'm getting the same there, but kind of going in a slightly different door is to say that that, that first one's just kind of getting the conversation up and running or another way to take it, which would be a little different is to say, um, cause if suffering and infirmity here are rough synonyms, cause I think they might be. You could kind of validate to say, of course, you're being invited to pray. And what does that look like? Being invited to pray always, always means calling others to pray for you. It's never only by yourself. But I don't know. I could just be a individualistic American here just trying to save my agency in the last gasp. So you know, <laughs> don't take it too seriously.
1: <laughs> that, well, no, I'm not against agency uh, as a, an ending place or a, or a goal, but as it's a, more the starting place. But I guess, you know, it just strikes me now we haven't given any attention to those who are of good cheer. Like, you know, it's okay to be happy, too. You don't have to be a miserable Christian at all times.
0: I'm glad you brought that up because there's it can be very easy to kind of, especially this year, I have gone to some services where they'll say things that I completely agree with. Like, it's okay to lament, you know, it's okay to grieve, you know, and I'm like, mm-hmm. hey, thanks. But sometimes I'll hear it like four or five Sundays in a row and I'm like, dude, got the <laughs> message. <laughs> I'm also looking right, right. For, uh, for some cheer up. And, and of course, I don't want to overcompensate that. But yeah, I mean, in many ways, that just that opening balance uh, of the two together is pretty powerful. I'm I'm glad you mentioned that. And actually,
1: you will be raised up, and the prayer of the righteous will work, and the earth will sprout fruit. So you know, like we we've totally zeroed in on all like the 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 tragic and extreme dimensions, but actually, this is weaves in all of the like the joyful and hopeful emotions too. So there's there's reason to keep like. The drought will end. The flowers mm. will come back. And uh, it doesn't go on forever. That's probably useful. You know, another thing we haven't talked about at all is, of course, anointing with oil, which is Whoops. hugely, yeah. yeah, like metaphorically <laughs> as well as literally important in many Christian traditions as well as Jewish ones. So, uh,
0: yeah, what sorry. Do you think about How did we forget that, that one?
1: <laughs> you come from an anointing tradition. Oh, no. Oh,
0: the time's up. <laughs> <I'm> just kidding. <laughs> yeah, sure. We do that sort of thing. Yeah, we sure do. Yeah, I mean, you know, there, it's it's hard to find a pulpit in kind of an old fashioned Wesleyan church that wouldn't have a little oil bottle sitting inside right. it, uh, right? And so that that is that, that is for often
1: services or for like healing of the sick specifically.
0: Often for healing, but also then for moments of commissioning, oil will right, often be right. used. It just happened today. I was there was a like a little commissioning service for the faculty for the year, and they did. They've anointed with oil. It's a nice. So we do that kind of double usage. And, well, here, let me comment on that. That's a good ending because I think the connection between anointing, the oil of anointing as healing, that seems to be in the foreground, at least at first glance here, and the, the connection of anointing with kind of empowerment for an office in other portions of the canon, I mean – On your reading, which I I think is the the correct reading of this text, those are, those two, the, the, the gap between those two, uh, starts to really close, right? Mm -hmm. Because it sounds like what it means for you to be healed is not, yay, now my life's better. See ya, right? It's, right? It's to, it's in order this restoration of your own agency to be a mediator of salvation in the lives of others, right? That's like,
1: yeah. Right. So, yeah. So,
0: anointing as healing and anointing as vocation are kind of two sides of the same coin. Maybe
1: I've got a super cool connection to Leviticus for you because okay. somebody who has been healed of leprosy, which of course is not really leprosy, but you know the skin condition that yeah, they yeah, call right. leprosy, gets the exact same anointing as a priest, as a Levitical priest. Brilliant. So it's like coming back from the brink of death in because uh, in Levitical thinking, it's. The, the problem with the skin disease is that it is actually dissolving the border between your body and the rest of the world and that means death like that's why if you right, get that that's cut what open, a like, does right yeah. yeah exactly it it's disintegrates so so to be healed of that brush with death is to be in a sense ordained the same way a Levitical priest is so then you know and you who also like, manage
0: that border that's like their job is right, right? exactly
1: <laughs> you think of like in, in Luke the story of the of the ten lepers who are healed and only one yes. comes back you know but but go and show the priest. Say, you know, show them what the Lord has done for you. There is supposed to be a connection between being healed and then becoming a proclaimer of the Lord's salvation. So I think that fits beautifully with the the Wesleyan practice you describe.
0: We should do yeah. that too. Yeah, and the and the remembrance that healing is for you is also very helpful when one's been praying for healing. Right to, to recognize what am I asking? I'm asking that my body may be restored. That I may be, you know a faithful and fruitful witness to the gospel, right? Right. And yeah. so to recognize that if there's a way for me to, it's just like back to Paul with the the, the flesh, the thorn in the flesh, right? Mm, um, mm-hmm. at you, you ask it, you ask three times, like Jesus in the garden, you really, <laughs> really? ask, right? Cause you're, you know, this will be a sign of resurrection, but Lord, if you choose not to, I'm still going to, I'm going to assume that that means I'm going to be somehow a more effective witness without the healing. Right. Yeah. yeah. But I still have a preference for the healing because that's more (laughs) like the end game that's resurrection. And at the end we're not, we're participating in his resurrection in the end game. So the resurrection gets the final word. Resurrection and crucifixion are not two equal things balancing each other out. There's a sequence, right, right, right. right? Yeah, and one has the upper hand in our you know lived experience, but the other gets the final word. So something along those lines. And I think the Levitical reference is nice. The story from from Luke is pretty cool, and then just some stories from our own lives. I mean, I, I can immediately think, I, I, and I don't know any any pastor who wouldn't be aware of who could tell two parallel stories, right. Mm. Of, yeah, yeah, yeah. uh, someone whose you know, witness was empowered by, a, by a kind of healing that cap- you know, made them capable of singing God's praises and someone who actually found an empowerment for witness, even in the suffering that they carried. Right. And how right. both can operate, you know, hmm. which then goes back to the beginning, right. If you're in, you know, if you're in pain, pray, call others to pray upon you. When things are going well for you, let's rejoice, right? You don't have to choose between those as one is valid and the other isn't, you know?
1: Right. Right. Pluck a stringed instrument.
0: Yes. (laughs) Twang. (laughs) Twang. (laughs) Well, thanks, Sarah, so much. It's always great talking to you. I appreciate the time you gave. And yeah, thanks to all our listeners as always. Thanks to Todd and Eric for their production work. Can't imagine doing this without them. Thanks to Tom Adamson for the theme music. And thanks uh, to our uh, patron saints who support the show. If you want to become a patron, Uh, Just go to patreon.com slash fresh text and see ways you can support the show. All right. With that said, we say have a good preach and a great week. Bye bye.